people shouted free Britney, and the Pennsylvania Supreme Court heard free Bill Cosby. And the United States Supreme Court has ended its term, and what a blockbuster of a term it was. During this term, the Supreme Court found a constitutional right to drop the F-bomb, catfish on Tinder, and stalk one's ex on Facebook. Kind of makes you think it's time for these justices to get out of the lockdown and out of their houses. Mackenzie and I have a lot to unpack in this week's debriefing of the law. Welcome to this week's edition of Debriefing the Law. I am Joel Oster, your fearless host, and with me this week is Mackenzie Smith. All right, Mackenzie, thank you so much for joining us. Now, you and I were just talking. This is going to be a fun podcast for several reasons. One, it's free Britney or free Bill Cosby week. We, you know, we somehow got mixed up in our signals. The Supreme Court has been on fire recently, and they're about ready to end their term. And most importantly, today, actually, when you and I are recording this, it's Wednesday night at about 9 or 10 o'clock. It's so late, I don't even know. Uh, and so we have no idea what's going to come out of our mouth. But tomorrow, the Supreme Court is going to be making huge decisions. So you and I are going to have to put our predictions on the line and say what we think the Supreme Court is going to do, knowing full good and well this will air the next day and either will be proven to be geniuses or idiots. Hey, Mackenzie, welcome. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there's probably already plenty of circumstantial evidence out there of my idiocy, so I'm not afraid. I'm going to tell you exactly what I think, and that's okay, and, you know, it's late at night. And, I feel reckless, so And that's why we love you and bring you on in here. It's so much fun to have you. Now, for our listeners who do not know this or you have forgotten, Mackenzie is talking to us from the great state of Pennsylvania. Last I heard, they're still checking for some of those votes that were miscounted somewhere. I don't know. Rudy Giuliani's been in the news. Uh, he's been disbarred in New York. Not so sure if he, what he can do there in Philadelphia. But I mention that because there is a huge, huge development. Um, uh, Mackenzie, the word is free Britney. What did you guys do today in Philadelphia? Um, are you referring to the Bill, Bill Cosby got out of jail? You got the wrong person. You got the wrong celebrity. You're supposed to free Britney. You freed Bill Cosby. What are you guys doing there in Pennsylvania? I mean, just to be clear for the record, I personally did not free Bill Cosby um, okay, today. Right. That would be above my pay grade because it was the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania that freed Bill Cosby today. And yes, nope. they rendered a decision in his appeal and he is at home, out of jail, as of this afternoon. Now, we got to talk about this right out of the sheet because this is a huge development. And I have to tell you, when I first saw this, I was irate that, I thought, why are they freeing this person convicted of a sexual assault uh, who's drugging these women? What, have they lost their ever-loved mind? Uh, and surely Bill Cosby has no political pull at 83 years of age. So what's going on? And then, Mackenzie, I actually read the Supreme Court opinion, for, uh, the Philadelphia Supreme Court opinion, not United States Supreme Court, uh, Philadelphia Supreme Court, which is interesting in and of itself, that the Philadelphia Supreme Court has supplanted the U.S. Supreme Court during its bi biggest week of the year. That's another story. I read the <laughs> opinion. Mackenzie, 
the, the court got it right. Bill should have been freed. Uh, why don't you unpack some of the issues? That, let's just dive right in. There are real significant issues here and political issues. This is a hot-button topic, so I want to tread lightly. Why don't you set the stage for us? Yeah, so this is it, – it's such a tortured and long history, this case. And I – you know, I'm not going to get everything exactly – Right. And I want a disclaimer that because I haven't been following this case, you know, in minute detail, and it is such a long history. But the broad strokes is that, you know, in 2004 or 2005, there was a victim um, who reported actually in Canada, she had moved to Canada, I believe, um, about a year after the assault was alleged to have happened. And she reported to her local police department that she had been sexually assaulted, drugged and sexually assaulted by Bill Cosby about a year prior. Um, that eventually, you know, made its way to the Montgomery County, Pennsylvania district attorney, um, at the time, who was a man named Bruce Castor, and they investigated um, this and determined after the investigation that there was not sufficient credible evidence to bring the case against Bill Cosby to trial. And there were a number of factors. You know, there was a time lapse in when she reported. and About a year. About a year. And there were other, you know, there was no... Uh, physical evidence, obviously, because of the time lapse and, you know. And the most interesting thing to me as I'm reading this court's opinion is that during that one year, both Bill Cosby and this lady had several, uh, I don't want to say run-ins, but they got together several times over the next year. Uh, they they continued to engage in business and things like that. And, and so I think this DA must have said, Whatever, this will be very hard to convict Bill Cosby based upon these facts. Yeah, you know, and we we do, you know, I, I don't know, I'm not, I don't have, like, the investigatory files of the Montgomery County DA's office. So, it, it who knows exactly what the investigation entailed and exactly what the basis of that decision was. But, you know, it, we are looking at that decision today. I mean, there is a jury instruction in Pennsylvania and most states, I believe, that says, like, you know, the testimony of the accuser alone is sufficient to convict beyond a reasonable doubt if you credit the testimony. Like, there is a specific jury instruction that says, you know, you don't need corroborating evidence. You don't need DNA. You don't need this stuff. The jury is permitted to convict on a criminal offense based on the testimony of one person if the jury decides that that testimony is credible. So it wasn't impossible to bring these charges and a conviction wouldn't be impossible. Um, but you know, it's when we sit here today, we've all lived through the more recent me too movement and we've all kind of our consciousness collectively has developed. And so, you know, in terms of the time lapse, we all now know, or most of us now know, like that's not uncommon at all. Um, in fact, it's probably happens more often than not in these types of cases. Bill Cosby was this young woman's mentor. Um, you know, he was someone in a position of authority and there was a power differential with respect to them. And it's just really not uncommon to, you know, even continue contact to have a time lapse and for it to take a while for the victim to really wrap typically her head around what in fact happened. Um, but you know, back in 2005, it was, you know, for not to use a, you know, trope, but it was a different time. Like we, it it probably would have been much more difficult to convict on in those circumstances 15 years ago than it is today. 
especially in someone like Bill Cosby in 2005. Now we look at Bill Cosby post the conviction, and now we know a lot more about Bill Cosby, and we're going to get to that in just a bit. But you're right, this was, you know, 13 years before that, and so... Bill Cosby was revered. I mean, he was the father of America, right? He went out there and held these comedic tours where he's talking about fatherhood, and so he was esteemed. And I'm thinking that this this DA probably just thought this is not a winnable case, and so he decided not to pursue a, a criminal charge, right or wrong. That's that's, that's the call that he made. Uh, now, so then what happened next? Because this lady. Was was obviously distraught from this. Uh, you know, finally she woke up in, in just tremors and couldn't sleep and told her mom they had to go to the DA and, and do something. Well, one of the mechanisms available to, to people, uh, you, you have your criminal remedies, right? You, their criminal charges can be filed against this person. If that doesn't give you any success uh, or relief... You also can file a civil suit. You actually can do both at the same time. But nonetheless, uh, you also can file a civil suit, which is what the lady did in this case. But McKenzie, as you know, there's a real problem with pursuing a civil lawsuit against someone that's also based on criminal conduct. It's called the Fifth Amendment. And so in that case, the defendant doesn't have to give testimony because it might incriminate himself. So during the depositions, he can just keep his mouth shut. So how did that complicate this matter? Right. So that that's very typical. And you see that, I mean, you know, with the O.J. Simpson case, for example, like the civil wrongful death case didn't even, you know, get off the ground until the criminal case was concluded. And that is very typical in these types of situations for exactly that reason, because while there's criminal charges pending, you know, the Fifth Amendment disallows, a, you know, anyone from forcing a criminal defendant, an accused person from testifying against themselves or, or really making any kind of statement about the case whatsoever. So what happened in the Cosby case essentially is that when DA Castor determined that there was not sufficient evidence to try the case. He told Bill Cosby and or Bill Cosby's attorneys that he was not going to prosecute. And therefore, you know, a civil case was filed and Cosby was deposed and gave testimony in the civil case. Um, And for some reason, this DA not only did what you just said, he then issued a press release telling the public and then he signed that press release. That's got to be highly unusual to sign a press release. I don't even know why you would sign a press release, but that's what he did. Uh, So basically he would say, look, I am not going to prosecute you. Now, McKinsey, why would the DA do that? So uh, the reasoning that the DA gave was that he wanted the victim to have some avenue to obtain justice. And by doing that, then she could proceed with her civil case and force Cosby to sit for a deposition and be cross-examined and answer questions, which is exactly what happened. Now, as we we, we talked about this pre-production, Bill Cosby then testified during the deposition. I think he gave four different deposition testimonies horrendous testimony. I mean, in, it was a confession. I mean, he said, yeah, this, I, this is what I would do. Uh, I'm paraphrasing here. You can read the court's opinion. But basically, he would use some kind of drug. Uh, he would give them to ladies so that their uh, in, uh, defenses go down. And then he would violate these people in, in sexual ways. 
uh, horrible kind of things. Uh, th- this all came out during the depositions. And so, yeah, I mean, as a prosecutor, now that's sitting in your lap. Now, what, what do you do? So you, now you know that Bill Cosby did these things, but you, you issue this press release saying, I'm not going to prosecute you, and that's, what, that's how you got this information. Do you just sit on it? Well, I mean, basically, you know, my understanding at least is kind of, yeah, until, and I can't remember that who the comedian was, but it was like at the beginning of the Me Too movement when everything kind of um, was exploding in that area. And there was a comedian who was giving a stand up show and said like, you know, I mean, come on, everybody knows like Bill Cosby's a rapist or something like that. And this video clip went viral. I'm like just remembering this right now. So I might be, you know, misremembering things, but I think this video clip like went viral and it just created like so much publicity and everyone was up in arms about it and more accusers came forward. And then, you know, this was in the midst of like the Me Too movement and all these other prominent celebrities were kind of being accused and, you know, even in the case of Harvey Weinstein, like taken to trial and convicted and all of these things. So, you know, all of this was going on and there was like immense public pressure to do something about it. And so a new candidate for a DA in Montgomery County, whose name is Kevin Steele, basically ran on a platform of I'm going to reopen this case and prosecute Bill Cosby and make sure he goes to jail, which is well, what happened. <laughs> Mackenzie, due to the beautiful power of Google, I asked Sir Google that question, and Sir Google told me Hannibal Burris is the comedian who reignited the Bill Cosby controversy. So kudos to you. You nailed it with you and Google. We found out (laughs) what exactly happened there. Uh, So, yeah. So I want to kind of paint this picture because you you just laid it out beautifully, but I want to paint the picture of the second DA who comes into the situation. Because this is not an easy decision. You have information, testimony, that Bill Cosby is a, has done horrible things. He sexually assaulted all of these women. I don't know the difference between sexual assault and rape. Uh, I'm going to call it rape. Uh, you have this information now that that's what Bill Cosby has done. What do you do? But you you also, the only re- reason why you got this information is because of this agreement not to prosecute. And I got to tell you, as from a legal standpoint, you you can't use Bill Cosby's testimony against him. You just can't. Uh, you, the only reason why you got him to testify is through this promise. Bill, you can't have a legal system built upon lies. And it, it's not as if, you know, there's a dispute. You no, know, did the, did the um, original pros- DA really promise that? Yes, he really did. It was a press release that was signed. There's no question. That's what he promised. And I think that we, yeah, the, the Philadelphia Supreme Court said we don't want a legal system based upon lies. Bill Cosby was entitled to rely on that. Okay. And we get that. And that's what's going to end up being the, the ruling here. But still, as a DA, do you not have an ethical obligation to follow the law? Or do you have an ethical obligation to make sure Bill Cosby pays for his crimes even though you know that you got that information in an improper way. I'm really struggling here on how that prosecutor or that is is able to draw the ethical line in this in this case. Yeah, I mean, you know, and here's here's my issue. I mean, the whole 
saga is so messy. And, you know, really at the end of the day, to me, this ultimate conclusion that happened today is almost like the greatest injustice to the victims. Because first you have this woman who was, you know, found it within herself to come forward back in 2005, knowing that she had, you know, waited a year to come for waited quote unquote a year to come forward and you know engaged in um telephone calls with him and knowing she, I mean she knew she knew that there were going to be questions right but she still came forward and had that whole saga happen and then he was recharged more recently and tried not once, but he had two jury trials, right? There were the first trial ended in a mistrial. It was a hung jury, I believe. And then he was tried again. So this woman has now, not to mention the other victims who came forward and, you know, became public with very humiliating and sensitive information and testified in front of juries and, you know, family members, you know, more than once, like this woman testified at least three or four times and to finally, you know, obtain a conviction and feel like, you know, you've been validated and the world believes you and, you know, is condemning this horrific violation of your personhood. And then to have him walk out of jail and go home on, you know, what is viewed probably by the public as like a technicality. It's, it's like the worst, you know, I would say, and again, we sit here in armchair quarterback and neither of us is a DA and, you know, maybe we're better off for that. But like, if, if your if your obligation is to do justice, like you can't, they're, they're inextricably intertwined because you cannot do justice unless you follow the law, because by not following the law, to a T here, look what's happened. Even a worse injustice to these victims than if he hadn't been convicted in the first place, I would argue. And so I think okay. a prosecutor's obligation has to be, you know, you, you always, your aim is to do justice. That's what you're there for. But you, you have to follow the law. Like you can't not because not following, you can't commit injustice in the name of justice. It just doesn't work okay, that way. So- so, Mackenzie, I'm going to give you my take on it, which, uh, as a preview, I'm actually going to side with the second prosecutor and with the Philadelphia and with the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. I'm going to explain why I'm siding with both of them, but then I'm going to pass it back to you, and you can have the final word before we move over to the Supreme Court. All right, here's my take. I agree with the second DA and he, for bringing charges, and here's what I mean. You can't bring... Uh, a, a legal matter, a, a lawsuit. You can't prosecute a case. You can't, uh, you know, bring a legal action unless you have a a good faith basis, that, you know, a non frivolous basis in law and fact to pursue that matter. Well, his argument was, no, look, under Pennsylvania law, in order to have immunity, it needs to be in writing. It needs to be a court order. We never got that. Therefore, I have a good faith basis to do this prosecution. And I am going to suggest that because he made that decision, these victims got as much 
justice as they could under the circumstance. Here's what I mean. Uh, Bill Cosby was about ready to go free. And because of this, they got a civil settlement of, I think, over $3 million. But also, Bill Cosby spent two years in jail. His reputation was ruined, of his own doing, of course, but it it is ruined. He can't go out there now and do a comedy tour. He's not going to get a job anywhere else. People will know him for being the sexual assaulted... I don't even know what the word is for that. But, you know, a person who sexually assaults women, he is now known for that. There's a little bit of justice there. And, he again, the crime that the years you would spend in jail for this crime would be three to ten years. He spent two years in jail. So I think we got some justice there. Now, is it as much justice as what we would like? Well, that's where the Pennsylvania Supreme Court comes in and says, hold on a second, you guys messed up. Uh, we, we know that you, you got this conviction, it's been two years, but you can't have lying going on in the legal system. Uh, please, no, no, don't, people don't laugh. Don't send me your nasty <laughs> comments. That is true. We don't want legal systems based upon lies. And here... There is no question that this immunity was offered, that they said, we will not prosecute you in exchange for your testimony. Bill Cosby should be allowed to rely upon that before, and then when he testified during the um, the civil hearing. And so I think both of them got it right. That's my take, but I'm going to give you the final word. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it was definitely messy in the way it all happened. Um, I totally understand where you're coming from. And I think, you know, immunity, and I haven't reviewed the the statute in Pennsylvania that talks about the court order, you know, the necessity of a court order and the immunity, you know, procedurally, but it, it is kind of a procedural issue, right? Like to me, immunity means you don't even have to show up to court. Like you're immune. You don't have to stand trial. You're, you are let off the hook basically. Like you can't even bring charges. And obviously like you know, he wasn't immune in the sense that he did have to stand trial twice for these crimes. And I, you know, I do think that in that sense, like the current DA had a good faith basis. I also think, you know, with the benefit of hindsight and the moment that we live in currently and our awareness of these issues, like my feeling And, you know, not to be self-aggrandizing here, but I feel like, you know, as a prosecutor, I had, I mean, I can think of two cases off the top of my head that came down to this. And and I really think as a prosecutor, like you, you have special obligations. You do have to ensure that the accused's rights are protected as well. That's part of your ethical obligations. You can't just like try to get a conviction no matter what. That's not how (laughs) you're not supposed to do that. And that's not how the system is set up. But I do think, especially in these, you know, sexual assault type, um, crimes, I feel as a prosecutor, if you believe the victim in, you know, using all of your training and experience, if you meet with someone and they're telling you that they were drugged and assaulted or assaulted or whatever, and you believe them, I think you have an obligation to bring charges and try the case. Like, I don't think you can say, well, it's not that likely that we get a conviction. Like if that victim wants to go forward and says, I want to bring this person to trial. I want to have my day in court and tell a jury, you know, what this person did to me. I think you have an obligation to do that. I think the the Commonwealth in this case and, you know, the people of the state of wherever, like, have an obligation to give that person their day in court, and that just wasn't done here for too long. 
And there you have it from a former prosecutor and possible future judge, uh, Mackenzie Smith. All right, now let's move. Oh, by the way, I, I think you now have time now to work on freeing Brittany. I know we just kind of teased that a little bit. We're going to come <laughs> back to that probably next week or whenever because I really want to get into that. That's going to get me going for an entire hour. I, I just have so many questions about Britney Spears and free Britney. But, hey, we, we got to jump in to the Supreme Court because this is sweeps season. And for you listeners, uh, check out our blog that we wrote about Supreme Court sweep season because where, where we went through these cases, uh, most of the cases, definitely the, the more fun, sexy cases we talked about and gave our own take on them. We're not going to have time today to go over all of the cases, but we want to go over some highlights. Uh, and some major trends that we saw during this Supreme Court sweeps season. I call it sweeps because I'm just alluding to in TV. You have sweeps week where the TV producers and directors do all kinds of crazy things to generate viewership and rating, drive up ratings so they get more advertising dollars. I think the Supreme Court must be doing the same thing by <laughs> you know, having all their opinions being released and, and during the end of June. But nonetheless... Before we get there to the the trends that we saw during Supreme Court sweeps, uh, we got to make predictions. Again, McKenzie, you and I, this is Wednesday night. It, it is, uh, you know, late Wednesday night. Uh, I'm drinking my coffee, so I'm good to go for another couple hours. But we, the, tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock Eastern, the Supreme Court is going to be issuing decisions on three matters. And so, Mackenzie, I want you and I to put our good name on the line and make predictions on these three matters. Matter number one, Justice Breyer. Uh, rumor is that he might retire. There's a lot of uh, people who are upset with RBG when she did not step down when Obama was in the White House and the Democrats controlled the Senate. She decided, no, I'm the best judge for this position. No one is, can do it better than I can. So she stayed on there. And of course, we know how that turned out when she did pass away. Trump was in the White House. She was replaced by Amy Coney Barrett. I'm very happy about that. Nonetheless, <laughs> you can see how people who were on, on the other side of the aisle would be upset with that. And so there's a pressure on Breyer to step down and retire now that the Democrats control the Senate and you have a Democrat in the White House. So what say you, Amy? Is, is uh, Justice Breyer going to announce his retirement tomorrow morning? I mean, I think there's a good chance of it, and I'll tell you why. Like, what we've seen over the past several years with first starting with Merrick Garland and that getting dragged out and then, you know, with RBG as well, I think there must be a lot of pressure on Breyer, either internally or externally. <laughs> you know, I think he probably feels like, he has another few years in him to work. And it, it's unfortunate because, you know, he's really written some great opinions this term. And he oh, obviously yeah. is still, you know, still got a lot of life left in him in terms of, you know, being a, a quite, you know, accomplished jurist. But I think seeing what happened the past several years with seats being held open until another election and all these games that have been played, you know, we are in year one of a new presidential term. So it would be the safest 
times were tough. Time. If he wants to ensure that his legacy is carried forth by someone who is like-minded, and you know, maybe I, who knows? I mean, I don't know if you watched this series, House of Cards, but there's one storyline where you know there are all these secret meetings between the president and the Supreme Court justice about you know who really? the president will appoint, and you have to appoint my clerk, and I want you know to review the shortlist, and who knows if like those types of conversations are happening. Right, right. And I don't want to make anything sound nefarious, but you know, it is, I think it is really important to some justices that they be replaced by someone who, you know, will kind of carry on their legacy on the court. And if Breyer wants the best chance at ensuring that, I think he would retire sooner rather than later. I, for one, like would be really sad to see him go. Cause I think, you know, I mean, he's had, again, great opinions this term. He had Flushgate, which was like, the best thing that came out of the COVID era in the Supreme Court, and I would be really sad to see him go, but, you know, having lived through the past five years or so of all the games that have been played, I also don't want to see something like that happen again, so I would, you know, I I'm ambivalent he, about it. I forgot he was the man behind Flushgate. Well, you, you that is the, all of the circumstantial evidence and the, I think it was a Slate article that I analyzed and had just a, like very compelling points. Like the, the author of that, you know, analysis really could get a job at any high powered white shoe law firm. Cause it was really right, right. just a comprehensive, astute analysis. And, you know, I, I too now have concluded that Breyer was in fact, the perpetrator of Flushgate. All right. Well, you know what? I'll, I'll take your word for it. Now I will say <laughs> he, uh, he's 82 years of age. So that's not that old. That's just hitting your stride as a Supreme court justice. Rumor has it. If he does step down and retire, he might then be in line to be Tom Brady's backup there at Tampa Bay. You know, they tend to like the older <laughs> quarterback, so he's not exactly out of the picture there. But I, I, I think he's hitting just he's hitting a stride. Why step down and retire? Uh, he is he likes being the free agent on the court. I, I gotta tell you, I don't know how he's gonna come out on a lot of these cases. He is that independent-minded jurist. He's a great example. I think he's not going to retire tomorrow. He's gonna stay on one more year. And yes, I do recognize the danger. It's a 50-50 split in the Senate. If some Something happens to a Democratic senator in a Republican state, then the, that replacement would be a Republican. So they could throw you know, throw the balance of the Senate back into the hands of the Republicans, and that might make a replacement that last year a little bit more difficult. But nonetheless, I am going to say Breyer is enough of an independent. He is thumbing his nose right now at all of those naysayers, say, we want you to retire. He's saying, nope, I am going to go with the weekend at Bernie's contingency plan. If I do die, <laughs> just prop me up and I will be good to go. All right. That's matter number one. And our votes are already recorded. I got your final answer. Too late to change him. Uh, but let's go on now to matter number two. Case. This is the Arizona voting rights case, and this is a huge one involving, was Trump right? You know that's how the public's going to perceive this. If the Supreme <laughs> Court rules on behalf of, of the voting rules that have been made there, they say, see, look, the Democrats were stealing the election, and these are needed. I know that's going to be the takeaway. I'm not sure that's the issue in the case. Let me give the, uh, Amy there, or McKenzie, there's two different issues here. Ballot harvesting and ballot deleting. As to the ballot deleting issue, here's what happened. There are several different precincts in Arizona, and if someone went to the wrong precinct and voted, 
What Arizona would do is they'd throw out the entire ballot, even the part of the ballot that voted for the senator, which it doesn't matter what precinct you're in, you're still allowed to vote for the senator. They would throw out the entire ballot, not just the votes that were made for the individual precinct people that would be, you know, obviously precinct dependent. And so that was issue number one, ballot deleting. Issue number two is ballot harvesting, which is where these third-party groups, people would go around and collect absentee ballots that were filled out by these various people, would collect them, and then deliver them to the election office. A lot of people are upset with ballot harvesting, say it's too ripe for fraud, because you could easily see how a party operative could just go to their people and pick up their ballots, would might lose the non-party ballots on the way to the election office. It's, you know, there's a lot of potential there for fraud. People on the other side say, yeah, there's potential, but show us the evidence where it actually has occurred. Touche, good point. Uh, nonetheless, uh, McKenzie, I'm going to go ahead and put my prediction on the line first. I'm thinking that this opinion will be written by Alito, and it's going to uphold Arizona's uh, practice of, of um, prohibiting ballot deleting, or I'm sorry, of allowing ballot deleting and prohibiting ballot harvesting. What say you, McKenzie? Ooh, um, <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely, I agree with you on the outcome, concur, um, <laughs> on the outcome. I think, you know, that the Ninth Circuit is going to once again get reversed, uh, in this case. And, you know, the, I guess the Arizona Republican Party will prevail if that's, if that's the correct, right. um, Appellant here. I think that the twist on this case is the racial discrimination aspect. So that some of the arguments, um, I guess, in favor of the one policy and against the other is that there were discriminatory impacts on voters of color. And the Ninth Circuit's ruling, I think, was pretty much on that basis that there were like these discriminatory impacts. And I think if you go back to the oral argument in this case back in the, I think it was argued in the fall, um, the attorney for, I think it was Justice Barrett who asked the attorney for the Arizona Republican Party, like, why are you a party in this case? <laughs> like, what is right, your, right. you know, and the attorney basically said, like, we don't care about race at all. We only care about power <laughs> and winning elections. <laughs> and every everything we do as the Arizona Republican Party is with the aim of keeping Republicans in power and disempowering any opposing party. Obviously, Democrats. Isn't really honesty refreshing? Else. Isn't honesty refreshing? I mean, it was a really <laughs> bold you know, litigation strategy and a bold move, but I feel like it also was really shrewd. Um, and I think the court, because of the way they've previously ruled in cases like the partisan gerrymandering case where the Supreme, a couple terms ago, where the Supreme Court basically said, like, we're not getting involved. That's a political question. Um, whether you can do that, the constitution doesn't necessarily prohibit it and we're not getting involved. I think, you know, the attorney really teed up an opportunity for the court to say like, you know, that's political mumbo jumbo. And it's really like not what the court does. And there should be a political solution to that. And if, you know, people are 
wrangling on political issues, like that's up to the state and the state determines how it's going to run its elections. And we're just like not getting involved. Um, and I think that, I think you're right in the first instance that people are going to see it as like, was Trump right? Is there fraud? And it's really, I, I have a different take on it. I don't think that at its core, like these disputes are really about that. I think they're just about the changing nature of hyper-partisanship in this country and the, you know, tactics that the parties will go to to try and maintain power. And that's, this is just another iteration of that. Well, let's unpack that because you mentioned the Voting Rights Act and is, I believe this is Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act that's going to be at issue in this case. Let's go back to Shelby County. And in Shelby County, uh, the Supreme Court really started attacking the Voting Rights Act. Saying we're, we've kind of moved beyond that now. Uh, the, there hasn't been the same kind of discrimination that there was in the past. And here, I think the court is going to continue that trend of striking down and, and not really relying on the Voting Rights Act. And here's what I mean by that. The court's going to say, Look, yeah, there might have been a, a disparate impact on a certain race, but that's always going to be the case with any kind of election change. Uh, because if we're talking about 50%, will this impact 51, 49? I mean, it's going to have an impact one way or the other. That can't be the determinative factor. Instead, was this motivated? By race, and I think there you just pointed out the argument by the uh, the Republican Party was. No, we didn't care about race. All we care about is, this is a zero-sum game. We want to stay in power. Okay, that sounds rather crass, but it's not race. And so because of that, I think the court's going to be convinced, yeah, this was not motivated by race. This was motivated by, uh, the, we're just going to look at the actual stated purpose, which is we want to prevent fraud and ballot harvesting and, and deleting these votes um, it's consistent to a purpose. Now, I don't get the whole ballot deletion thing. I'm not sure I understand why they would do that. Uh, if you filed it in the wrong precinct, why don't you count the votes that were done statewide? I just, I'm not sure I understand the state's interest there of, of kicking that out for the, 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 the statewide vote. I'm not sure I understand that one. But nonetheless, I do think this court is going to be reluctant to micromanage voting laws and they really went out of that game and so we'll see if the court continues with that trend that was started in shelby county where the court said we are going to remove ourselves from being the overlord and just being the uh, of these voting right changes of, of laws yeah right. i mean it's problematic right because like i don't <laughs> i mean <laughs> after just having lived through the 2020 election and seeing the scenes that kind of went on in my state it's like you know and the court may be constitutionally correct about political question doctrine and, you know, staying out of the fray, but like on the ground here, it's a hellscape. Like we really need, <laughs> you know, better. And, and maybe at the end of the day, like this kind of litigation and the, the, you know, increased awareness of these issues will motivate localities and states and local precincts to kind of up their game in terms of managing elections. Um, but it kind of makes you feel unmoored and untethered when the Supreme Court doesn't, you know, set a, a standard that we should all go by in at least federal elections. So, 
Uh, all right, that's your final answer. We got our votes recorded. Now on to our third issue, and that is the donor disclosure case. Americans for Prosperity Foundation v. Bonta, and also Thomas More Law Center v. Bonta. Uh, these are a pair of challenges by two conservative groups uh, to a policy of Cal- uh, the California, so the California Attorney General's Office, required charities to disclose the names and addresses of their major donors, these groups complained about that and said, no, our donors, we don't want to give you that name. McKinsey, I think this is a valid kickback to the council culture that we live in. And it seems like nowadays, if you support a cause, if you give money to a cause and someone out there doesn't like that, they institute a council culture against you. And that is going to suppress donors from giving. And so here, when that is a reality, what the Supreme Court has said, because they have a previous opinion on this, uh, uh, involving the the NAACP, but the Supreme Court said, no, look, you got to have, I believe, exacting scrutiny. You got to pass exacting scrutiny. You got to have a a reason, articulated, articulated reason for why you need these donor names. You just can't generally want them in light of a situation where it's going to suppress First Amendment freedoms. And so I think the court here is going to say, California, this is not your season. You are batting zero for whatever. Actually, you win one case. But outside of Texas v. California, which really wasn't even California's case, that was Obamacare. Uh, But nonetheless, outside of that one case, I think California is striking out this term. Uh, And this is another one. And they are going to, it's going to be a swing and a miss by California. And they're going to vote against California and say these, they did not really establish that they need this information in light of the council culture that these uh, charities will face. What is your thought? Yeah, you know, California really has taken a shellacking this term, and that's not, like, totally unusual. I mean... I am grinning right now, ear to ear. (laughs) Go on. (laughs) I mean, I think, you know, it's pretty common knowledge that the Ninth Circuit is, like, by far the most overturned of any of the circuits, and it's known as being, like, super liberal, and the Supreme Court loves to overturn it, Um, and California loves to enact these, like super progressive, like, you know, far-reaching statutes and policies that just get challenged all the time. And that's just what they do. It's California. Um, But I totally agree with you. I think, you know, in addition to California taking a beating this term, I think one of the, you know, themes or threads that's come out of this term is just how strongly this court feels about First Amendment protections. And we've seen that in you know, we've seen that in the Fulton case. We saw that in the cussing cheerleader case. And this is another First Amendment case where I just think that the party invoking the First Amendment is going to win. It's just that's going to happen. The court's going to find a way to do it. It's not particularly difficult in this case, given the fact that there is prior you know, precedent and language that they can use in supporting their opinion. And, yeah, I agree with you. I don't you know, I don't. I don't even think they have to get into the whole cancel culture twist to it. I mean, it's pretty clear on its face, like what the issue is. And I, I think the court, this term has made pretty clear where it stands on, on those types of issues. So that's, right. I agree with you. Your vote has been recorded. Uh, and so, Hey, you know what, when this airs, we'll have to see, are we smart or do we need to get real jobs? All right. Well, 
<laughs> now let's transition to what we do know, and that is the Supreme... The, we are nearing the end of Supreme Court sweeps the season. In fact, by the time this airs, it will be over with. And there are a lot of trends that we have seen at the Supreme Court during the season. I want to just mention some of them. I'm going to go down my list, and Mackenzie, I want you to just jump in whatever to give your thoughts on it and see if you have any to add. But my number one takeaway from this Supreme Court season is... Obamacare is done. I, I think Obamacare is it's done. Uh, I think in Texas v. California, the Supreme Court held that Obamacare is it's not unconstitutional because we're not even going to answer that issue. You guys don't have standing. Uh, if, you, if you don't remember what happened in uh, Obamacare 4, Texas v. California, and if you don't understand what I mean by Obamacare 4, it's the fourth uh, uh, movie in this franchise. Go check out my blog where I wrote about all the different, you know, titles to these different Obamacare cases, compare them to movies. This one is Standing Strikes Back because the court said, look, these plaintiffs don't have standing to challenge this because there's no credible threat of enforcement of these laws. There's no tax. There's no penalty. Nothing. You can't enforce it. Which to me, McKenzie, means if, if, if there's no credible threat of enforcement of these laws, then... Is the law not dead? I think what's left here is Obamacare is just simply an insurance program people can use if they want to. They don't have to. And if they don't do it, there is no penalty for not doing it, which means it might lead itself. It might just, it might just uh, die its own death here in a, a couple of years. What, what is your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree, and I think the um, Texas v. California case is, is indicative of another theme this term, which is really, you know, I kind of see this term as a rebuilding year. Um, you know, you have years where there's, like, a huge case or two on, like, major cultural issues like gay marriage or even the year with Citizens United or Bush v. Gore. Um, you know, you have all of these, you know, kind of turning point cases. This term wasn't really that, but what we did have this term was a totally new makeup of the court with the six to three, right. quote-unquote, conservative majority. And I really think the court had spent a lot of time redefining what it does. So you've seen a lot of cases get decided on justiciability issues like standing and political question and things like that, where the court's basically saying, hey, this case raises an issue that we actually don't get to, that we that, that isn't appropriate for the court to reach the merits of. And then on the cases where they did reach the merits, you see a lot of 7-2, even 9-0 decisions, but they're on really narrow interpretations. Yes. So they're not cases where the court is like, you know, so to speak, quote unquote, legalizing gay marriage. Like they're not doing something huge and sweeping or overturning precedent like they did in Citizens United. Like it's very narrow issues and they're getting a very broad consensus from the justices. And I don't, I think, you know, this is Roberts being very concerned as he always is with the legitimacy of the court and wanting to make a statement that, you know, this isn't just going to be uh, like Trump court now, like a conservative court that just rubber stamps whatever conservatives want. Like this is going to be a court that's more contemplative about it and, you know, seeks to get broader consensus. And I also think maybe, you know, they're trying to set an example for the rest of us about how 
democracy and politics is supposed to work. Like it's not as sexy, right. As when you have these broad sweeping cultural turning point moments. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have those, like those are extremely important, but sometimes it's the quieter, more methodical, more nuanced plodding along that actually in the long run makes more of a statement And I think here, you know, this year's court has really tried to make a statement like there's still a place for broad consensus in this country. It's just going to be on very narrow issues, but it's a start and we can start there. And that's what we should be doing, kind of like inching forward as opposed to wildly swinging the pendulum back from one side to the other. Let's make that our second takeaway. Our first takeaway is Obamacare is done, maybe. Our second <laughs> takeaway is that um, core packing is on their mind. You just point out yeah, this core, I think, went above and beyond trying to find consensus where they could. Nine zero opinions, eight one opinions. But then when the court was fractured, let's say at five to four, the grouping of justice were not along party lines. I am not sure as of yet during Supreme Court sweeps, we've had any five four decisions along ideological lines. Now, probably tomorrow we'll see some. I think they probably waited. I think maybe some of those decisions might fall on party lines. Not so sure about that. But nonetheless, I, that definitely was a deliberate decision by by the Chief Justice to uh, because uh, because court packing is on his mind. All right, my third takeaway is I believe this term. We saw a case that kind of represented a parent's worst nightmares. I'm going to ask you what you think about this case. I'm talking about the F-bomb. Mackenzie, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm going to. If your children just drop the F-bomb at, at dinner, the dinner table, what are you doing? I feel like this is a forced disclosure of how terrible I am at parenting, but like, <laughs> I don't actually have like that big of a problem with obscenity. Um, it depends on what context, like if it's directed at somebody, my kids really don't swear though. They really don't. But I hypothetically, hypothetically, I, I mean, I wouldn't punish them. I would probably oh be guess. like, Oh my gosh, don't say that. But I would probably McKenzie, be laughing. I tell you what, the <laughs> things I learned about you, I remember from last time, several months ago, you were on saying, I'm, I'm, I'm quasi-European. I don't mind if we all use the same bathrooms. And now you're saying this. But you know what, Mackenzie, you actually have the mind of a Supreme Court justice. They agree with you. In the Cuss and Cheerleader case, they said the F-bomb is not necessarily disruptive. It didn't cause substantial disruption. And so the uh, school district violated this uh, cheerleader's rights by disciplining, by suspending her for a year from cheerleading for dropping the F-bomb on Snapchat. Of course, that was after the court first had to deal with the issue of what is Snapchat? But I'm sure their grandkids <laughs> were there to kind of explain it to them, and they were able to move forward. All right. My third takeaway is uh, from the Supreme Court term, there's no place like home. Mackenzie, did you notice that, that during this term, the court was particularly protective of the home and people's property property rights? 
Uh, they certainly were, except for the property rights of the state of New Jersey. If you're an individual <laughs> asserting property rights, like yes. you are good to go. I even remembered, I think it was the Lang v. California case where the California, another loss for California, right? The California, right, right. I think it was a California police officer um, right. put on his lights and siren to pull someone over. I don't. Music was playing too loud. Okay, so that was what the offense was. The music was playing right. too loud. The guy doesn't stop, which now makes it at least if you're in Pennsylvania, it would now make it a misdemeanor, right? Like playing your music. And too it loud. was there too. Not stopping is a misdemeanor. Okay, That's the so, thought. Yeah, so now it turns into a misdemeanor. So not like the the smartest decision. However, anyway, the guy goes home, goes into his garage and I guess like puts the garage door down or whatever. And the police officer just like goes inside, no warrant, nothing. And it was a fourth amendment case. And the court came out in favor of the individual and said like, look, it doesn't count as hot pursuit. If you're like hot pursuit is one of the exceptions, right. To the warrant requirement. So right. typically you need a warrant to like burst into someone's home and arrest them or grab Right. evidence or whatever. There are several exceptions. One of them is hot pursuit. So if someone's like in the middle of committing a crime and they just like, you can't just like be like, Oh, I'm on base. You can't get me. Um, but you know, the court basically said like, okay, that has limits. And like, you don't, it doesn't count as hot pursuit. If you're pursuing someone for like playing, you know, <laughs> music too loud, like that yes. doesn't count as hot pursuit. You can't do that. You need to like get a warrant or like mail the person a summons and they can come to court or whatever. Um, I mean, because that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if, yeah, if you ever yeah, watched totally a movie, have you ever watched a movie and you saw a high speed car chase where the cops are chasing someone on the movies? I assume you've seen that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's never been because the person in the lead car Failed to turn on his turn signal. I mean, you don't have misdemeanors <laughs> causing these car chases. It makes for really boring movies if you did, and it makes for a Fourth Amendment violation if the cops do it. And, and so, yeah, the, the Supreme Court said, no, you, you can't do that. You, you can't just be in a hot pursuit to invade someone's home when you are pursuing a misdemeanor. At least categorically, that does not give you the right. The court is always very concerned in Fourth Amendment cases to say these are fact-specific. The cops just have to act reasonable, and here the cops are not, are not acting reasonable, and we're not going to give them some categorical exception to be in hot pursuit of a misdemeanor and then enter someone's home. And so, yeah, I think there's there's no place like home. There's another case, uh, Coniglia v. Strom, where the court held the same thing. There's no, there's not a, care, a community caretaking exception that allows cops to go into your house without a warrant. And then we had the Cedar Point Nursery v. Hasid case where the cops or the, the, the court said, again, another strike for California, uh, you can't require a property owner to allow uh, union people onto their property to talk to workers. That is the unconstitutional taking of the property. And the court struck that down as well. But All you right. know, what's not, you know, what state the court hates almost as much as it hates California apparently is New Jersey. And I have to like <laughs> mention this because I'm in Pennsylvania. I actually live, you know, within a couple miles of a very controversial pipeline that has recently gone in and there, you know, pipeline, Issues are major issues in the area where I live. Right. So there is a case that got decided, I think, last week or maybe it was Monday of this week. I Time right. is, you know, a, a construct anyway, so whatever. <laughs> At some point within the past several You're days. You're a lawyer, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> time is an illusion. Um, it's Penn East Pipeline versus New Jersey, and Penn East 
Pipeline Company LLC is a company that is building a pipeline from the shales in, I guess, Northeast Pennsylvania. And it's going through Pennsylvania into New Jersey. And um, part of the pipeline was going through, like normally they eminent domain this property where the pipeline goes and they, and they, you know, pay the homeowners or landowners or whatever. But I guess part of the property where they wanted to put the pipeline was owned by the state of New Jersey and Penn East attempted to initiate eminent domain proceedings to obtain land belonging to the state of New Jersey. And state of New Jersey said, you can't do that. We're protected by the 11th amendment. So so hold on a second there. I need to figure this one out here because I (laughs) I got a little confused. You can explain it to me. So where was this action filed? Was it filed in state court? I assume not. I assume this was filed in federal court. Correct. Okay. Filed in federal court. Um, and was the state a party? And the state was a party, is a party. Wow. You have to explain to me how the court came to this decision. I am confused. Yeah. So there's an amendment to our constitution that says the judicial power of the United States, a.k.a federal court jurisdiction, right, shall not be construed to extend to any suit commenced or prosecuted against one of the United States by citizens of another state. All right. Or by foreign people, basically. And Case closed right there. Boom. Done. Right. Like, I confirmed it, and Penn East Pipeline Company, LLC, is, in fact, a Delaware corporation. It appears that its principal place of business is in Pennsylvania, so it would be a foreign you know, a citizen of another state. It's not a New Jersey citizen suing New Jersey. It's a Pennsylvania or Delaware citizen suing New Jersey. So it seems to be like really clear on the face of the 11th amendment that like you can't sue New Jersey in federal court if you're not, you know, if you're a foreign citizen. And so how did the court get around this? The court got around this and basically said, um, this private company is allowed to eminent domain land belonging to the state of New Jersey for its pipeline because New Jersey waived its 11th Amendment protections by ratifying the Constitution, which includes the eminent domain clause. Wow. And I don't... I I don't get that at all because, correct me if I'm wrong... But the 11th Amendment is in the Constitution. It's an amendment to the Constitution. You don't waive something by ratifying the 11th Amendment. You are adopting that into the law. So I am totally confused here. Was this the ends that justifies the means? Or is this maybe just, I'm going I'm to change my little uh, uh, takeaway here. There's no place like home unless that home is in New Jersey, in which case we don't <laughs> care about you. Is that what he's saying here? I mean, it seems to be, I, I don't know. And I'm so confused by this and I need to, you know, it's been a long week. It's only Wednesday, but I need to go read this again <laughs> and try to figure out like, there's gotta be some rational explanation for this because on, at a first glance, like this makes no sense whatsoever. And if I'm not mistaken, I think it was Roberts who wrote this opinion and it's like, wait, It's very circular. I'm not understanding what's going on. And I know that Chief Justice Roberts is a lot smarter than I am. So I must be missing something here, but I don't know. I mean, it's very confusing. How would ratifying the Fifth Amendment before the Eleventh Amendment was ratified, but then ratifying the Eleventh Amendment waive your right to invoke the Eleventh Amendment? 
I don't know. I Add mean, to the fifth. That makes no sense whatsoever. You're right. We're going to dig into that and come up with a better answer next week. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure we're going to just find out the ends that justifies the means. I have no idea. But you're right. We'll dig into that and, and come up with an answer next week. All right. I'm going to conclude with this thought. Uh, and the, the oddest rationale of any case that I found during the Supreme Court sweep season, was Van Buren v. United States. Now, what this case dealt with was this um, police sergeant, now former police sergeant, took a bribe to go through his work computer, the database on his work computer, to find this, um, this undercover cop and then see if she was an undercover cop and then to rat this person out to someone wanting that information. So this person was on the take and take a bribe and rat out an undercover cop uh, for some money. Now, uh, the issue in that case was, was this an abuse of the person's work computer? Now, McKenzie, I think anybody with half a brain would say, clearly that's an abuse of your computer privileges. I know any parent would say that if their child misused their computer for the improper purposes. Of course, the court did not do that. The court said, no, because you had access to your computer in the first place, this really wasn't an abuse of those computer privileges. Again, we get that. But the, again, I list this case because of the, it's the oddest rationale of any case that I, uh, that I read this term. Amy Coney Barrett, for the court, wrote this. She said that um, uh, you have to rule this way. You, you have to say that this cop did not abuse his computer privileges because this would criminalize everything from embellishing an online dating profile to using a pseudonym on Facebook. McKinsey. Since when did catfishing and stalking one's ex become fundamental rights under our Constitution that's worthy of protection by the U.S. Supreme Court? I mean, I'm telling you, they are good to go on the First Amendment. Like, they are, like, hot to trot. You can say whatever you want. You can catfish whoever you want. You can embellish your face with your dating profile on Tinder or whatever. You can Snapchat the F-bomb all over creation. Like, this Supreme Court wants us to swear and lie about who we really are, I think, is what's going on this term. And, I mean, maybe, you know, I don't know if there's a reason why Justice Barrett seems very concerned about the criminalization of catfishing. But, you know, it's it's also been a term where these, like, you know, odd hobbies and proclivities of the justices have kind of come out. There was an obscure personal jurisdiction case that came out where— um, I think it was Neil Gorsuch talked about, you know, he was very concerned about there being too much jurisdiction over hermits in Maine who carve (laughs) duck decoys and sell them on Etsy. Like there was a whole passage about this. And then with the catfishing, and then of course we have in the NCAA case, Justice Kavanaugh's lengthy concurrence talking about how passionate of a sports fan he is. So let there be no doubt about that this term either. But we really got to know the justices on a personal level, I feel like, in a way that maybe we haven't in a very long time. And, you know, honestly, maybe that was one of the side effects of the COVID pandemic. Yes, I was thinking about that. Yeah, we all kind of feel like, you know, we've seen inside each other's homes. There's no more kind of, 
you know, that boundary between work life and home life. Everybody knows if your kids are in the room and maybe we all just cut some of these barriers and these formalities are kind of starting to crumble and we're just starting to get a little bit more intimate look of, you know, even people who are at the highest ranks of public life. I think you've nailed it on the head that these justices need to get out. They have cooped up for way too long. They're entertaining themselves in ways that maybe they normally wouldn't. Uh, apparently, I don't know what they're doing on cat on these dating websites or on Facebook, but nonetheless, that is a very fascinating insight takeaway. So let's close with that thought. Hey, thank you so much, Mackenzie, for joining us this week. And uh, yeah, we will, you know, this by the time this is airing, we will either be proven to be geniuses or crazy. I don't know what, but hey, uh, we'll come back next week and either own up to it or we can have our own hour of gloating. So, hey, have a great week, Mackenzie, and we'll see you next week. Thanks. You too. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star review. We need your love to help us continue highlighting the funnier side of the law. I want to give a special shout-out to our Vice President of Operations, Wendy Oster, without whom this entire operation would be a mess. Sean Wint and 15.5 Features for making me sound way better than I actually do. Brooke Bolin for spreading the good word about us. And Ryan Kuhn and Paul Kuhn of Triplicity Marketing for our technical and computer support. 